Big news. Big news. Let's tell them. Right now? Yeah, right now. Juicers? Your boys have their first sponsor? Check this out. It's actually really cool because we use it too. So it's like an amazing software. We are very proud to announce that we have partnered with Rent Ready as our first official sponsor slash partner for the Weekly Juice Podcast. Are you new to investing? Wondering whether or not you can self-manage your properties? Let us tell you about Rent Ready. Rent Ready is a really awesome property management software that can help you grow and handle every aspect of your real estate business. Rent collection, tenant screening, maintenance, lease signing, listing. Honestly, it has everything. Yeah, how long do you think we've been using Rent Ready for ourselves? About five months. Yeah, about five months. It's been awesome. We do use their push notification system to send notifications to tenants. We collect rent from our tenants right through the app. And we're actually about to use their new feature, their 24-7 maintenance software called Latchel. And a Latchel will allow you to remove yourself as the landlord, as the middleman between your tenants and maintenance calls. So the tenants can directly call a maintenance line and they will dispatch contractors right to the property. We should also mention that Rent Ready is unlimited. All their plans are flat price. This essentially means you can keep adding properties to your portfolio without having to pay more. You can close on all the properties you want and Rent Ready's price stays the same. The best part is Rent Ready's given us an amazing deal to pass on to our weekly juice listeners. You guys, everyone listening, can get 50% off a Rent Ready plan at rentready.com when you use our code JUICEPOD. That's R-E-N-T-R-E-D-I.com with code JUICEPOD. J-U-I-C-E-P-O-D at rentready.com and you can get 50% off any plan. If this is your first time here, welcome. During our shows, we interview successful entrepreneurs and investors to spread knowledge, advice, and actionable tactics to help others in the pursuit of financial freedom. We discuss successes, failures, systems, motivations, experiences, and key lessons learned along the way in the hopes that these stories help you along your journey. Tune in every Wednesday to get your weekly juice. If you've been here before and like what you've been hearing, please subscribe, share with friends, rate and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. That goes an extremely long way for us. It's simple. Just click on your podcast app, type in our podcast name, The Weekly Juice, click on the reviews and let us know what you think. The more ratings we get, the more eyes we'll get in our show and in turn, we'll be able to provide you all with high quality guests. You can also find us on Instagram at Weekly Juice Pod for daily content and personal finance tips to assist in your journey towards financial freedom. Welcome back to the Weekly Juice. As always, Ryan and Corey here with another episode for you. Today, we had on special guest, Rachel Richards, aka at Money Honey Rachel. She is phenomenal. She's 27 years old and was able to quit her job as a financial analyst and is now retired living off of $15,000 a month in passive income. And she has over 40 rental units. She's absolutely killing it. And to top it off, she's a phenomenal person, super kind, nice, genuine, and just had a plethora of knowledge that she uh, dropped on us today. Yeah, she's 28 now, which is crazy. It's like she started this journey to FI essentially four years ago in 2017. And she talks about how she scaled her real estate portfolio to 40 units, like you mentioned, $15,000 a month. I mean, she's living off this. She was a former financial analyst making, she jumped her way up. She was making, you know, 30, 40, 60. I think she ended up making around $100,000 a year and then tried to replace her income passively. And when I say passively, I mean like, royalty income, portfolio income, coin operated machines that she, I don't think she's done, but she understands the techniques behind it. And she's, she teaches people about it. 
ads, e-commerce, and then rental income. She has a book that talks about 27 different ways to create passive income. So if you're interested in real estate investing, we do dive into that. But in this episode, we also talk about so many other ways to create passive income. And Rachel's book also explains it more. So really, really good episode. Like Ryan said, a really good person. And we should just bring her in. Let's do it. Well, Rachel, officially welcome to the Weebly Juice. We are uh, super excited to have you here. Thanks. Thank you guys so much for having me on. Yeah, it's our pleasure. So if you could kind of just give a little background on yourself, who you are, where you're from, and then how you managed to become financially free by age 27. Yes. So I'm Rachel. Um, I'm 28 now. And we live my, I live with my husband in Colorado Springs with our dog. And um, high level overview of how I retired at 27 is that we started in 2017. My husband and I started building passive income streams. Before that, we didn't have anything else. We just had our full-time jobs. So in 2017, we purchased our first rental property in Louisville, Kentucky. And then later that year, I wrote and launched my first best-selling book, Money Honey. So we had these two passive income streams, rental income and royalty income. And we focused on growing those as much as we possibly could over the next few years. So fast forward to now, we now have almost 40 rental units that brings in anywhere from eight to 10 grand a month in profit. I have two best-selling books and online courses as well. And we're making about 15 grand a month in passive income. So I was able to officially quit my job and become financially independent in 2019. Wow. So if that's not intimidating enough for people, I think we, <laughs> we want to dot, like kind of reverse engineer this a little bit and, and start at the beginning and, and how you, like, when did the light bulb of fire go off for you? Because being 27 and being financially free is, is a dream for a lot of people, for, for, for most people. So how did this, how did this inception of the idea even start for you? You know, I've been a personal finance nerd my entire life. I remember reading books when I was in middle school even, and I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad in high school. That's what's, what first turned me on to real estate investing. At the time, I didn't know that there were all these other types of passive income I could create. So I just focused on real estate investing as our avenue to achieving financial independence. That was kind of my plan from the get-go. Um, I did not anticipate writing a book that would have that became a bestseller and did really well, but that part's been fun because that's what I'm truly passionate about is helping female millennials learn about money management. So I've been able to grow this business and have other income streams be, because of that business as well. So I guess to to talk about financial independence in general, it sounds like you you started at an early age and you got the idea, but I'm curious what that financial independence actually means to you, Rachel, because it can have a different, different definition for a lot of people. So if you could help define what it meant to you and then how you slowly started to take steps to get there. Yes. So to me, financial independence, I use the words retired and financially independent interchangeably. So a lot of people look at me now and they're like, well, Rachel, you're not retired. You're still working. And that is very true. I am still working, but I work now because I want to, not because I have to. So to me, financial independence isn't about, you know, never working again or never doing anything again in my life. Like I would get very bored. I, I like to be creative and to build things. It's just about having the freedom to, to work when, where, and if I want. Awesome. That's great. Your passive income strategies may, I think it, this is a really interesting topic for a number of people who listen to us because we do focus oftentimes on real estate, but you have 
I noticed that you have five passive income strategies, and some of them are things that people may not have ever even thought of. Ryan's passive income strategy is is real estate, and we both own we both have four hundred one ks and invest a little bit in stocks. But our main hub is uh, is real estate. So your passive income strategies, I noticed you have royalty income, portfolio income, coined operated machines, which I think is very interesting. Ads and e commerce, and then you have rental income as like the last one. So could you just touch on a couple of those to give our listeners an idea of of what some of these other ways to create passive income are? Yes, absolutely. So for example, royalty-based income streams, that's a big source of income for me just because of my two books. So anytime you create a literary or artistic work, you create it once and then it can sell over and over again forever. So all of the hard work of me writing my two books is I'm past that. I do, I, I maybe spend an hour or two per week marketing um, and some people would be like, well, that's not passive if you still have to work, but it's just kind of a comparison game for me. I mean, it's a lot more passive than a 40 hour a week job. So a lot of these passive income streams, they're not a hundred percent hands-off, but you will need to spend a couple hours a week or a few hours a month just to maintain them. But that's how a royalty-based income stream would work. Um, coin operated is a really cool topic a really cool category of passive income. And my husband and I almost started doing this one ourselves, but basically this is where you have something like a vending machine, a coin operated machine. You purchase those machines, you find locations for them, and then it becomes very passive. You can even outsource somebody that can go around and restock the vending machines each week and collect the money. So that's a very passive income stream. Um, we thought about doing it on a larger scale in terms of investing in a laundromat which is a business full of coin-operated machines. And a lot of people make really great money that way. Um, but then we, we just went into more multifamily investing instead. So that's coin-operated. And then you've already mentioned the huge one, which is rental income. And rental income is my favorite from a financial perspective for many reasons. It's kind of the holy grail because not only are you getting the benefit of the cash flow or the passive income, but you're also getting equity buildup because your, pen, your tenants are paying your mortgage for you over time. So after 30 years, you own a property free and clear having only paid the down payment. Then you also get tax benefits like depreciation. And the fourth benefit, which I really see as a bonus because it doesn't always happen, is appreciation of the property itself. So that's why I love rental income. I truly think it's one of the best ways to build long-term wealth and that every young person should own real estate. Cool. So when you got started, uh, I guess in 2017, diving a little bit into the real estate game here, you bought a duplex, we understand. Can you walk us through some of the strategies that you did to, to buy that duplex and not only buy that one, but then scale? Because going from one or two units with a duplex to 40 in, you're talking about four years, I think it was even sooner. Um, that can be like, wow, how does anybody do that? So can you talk about that little middle ground after the buying the first property? And then how did you uh, accelerate that process. Yes. And I'm glad you asked because a lot of people assume I'm like a trust fund baby or something and I'm not. That's so. real, right? That's like, that's, that's yeah. a real assumption from people. So I'm glad you're not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I'm not a trust fund baby. I never even made six figures from a job or career ever in my life. I graduated from college and I was making $36,000 and then like $42,000 for the first three or four years after graduating. So a lot of people are like, well, how did you come up with the down, the down payment for the first property? We had a couple things going for us. Um, 
first of all, we both paid our way through college. So we did not graduate with debt. I sold Cutco cutlery. Have you guys heard of Cutco knives? Yes. yes. <laughs> the best, you know, made in America knives. Um, so I sold knives and I paid my way through school. And then my husband is a veteran. So he used his military benefits to pay for his tuition. So we both graduated without debt. And although I was making a low salary, um, we were able to save a lot of money. So in those early years, I was living off a budget of like 1500 a month. I was saving half of my income, even when I was making that much money. Now in 2017, by then my husband, I think had just gotten to six figures, um, but I still wasn't making a lot, but we just were really aggressive about saving our money. Also, because we invested in Louisville, Kentucky, it's such a low cost of living area, reasonable housing prices. So by then we each had 10 grand in savings and our duplex that we found was hundred grand. So we were able to put, combine our money to get to the 20% down payment. And that's how we bought the first one. And then your question was, how did we scale? Because yes, we went from zero to I think 38 units in like two years, which was very, very fast. Um, we own six buildings. So it's just FYI, it's not 38 properties. It's six properties. We have several properties that are 10 to 12 units each, but we were able to scale for one, because of one main reason. And that's because I had my real estate license. I did not have my license for, I didn't, I didn't have clients or anything. I wasn't helping people buy or sell houses, but I just had it for my own purposes as an investor. So we would deplete our savings to buy a property, but then because I was representing myself as the buyer's agent, I would immediately get a commission check back for thousands of dollars. Sometimes it was 10 grand or 12 grand. And that put us way ahead in terms of saving up money for the next down payment. So add that to our already aggressive savings rate and the fact that we were saving 100% of the cash flow. That's how we were able to come up with down payment after down payment and scale really quickly. That's incredible. And we have, I guess we go through this argument or I guess battle in our heads each time, right? It's like, do you suggest that it gets a real estate license purely for all these benefits? You said you mentioned that you weren't really buying and selling through anyone else. It was just for your own, not selfish purposes, but like tactful um, strategy. So would you recommend people starting out that they go get it just to, to learn everything and then potentially have, you know, a nice tool set? Based on my experience, I would, I think there's several benefits. There's obviously the huge commissions you can earn when you're representing yourself. There's also the learning. So, you know, you're required to take certain courses and when you become a landlord, it is really helpful to understand here's what you can and can't do. Here's the discrimination laws. So that education definitely came in handy. And then the third thing is I had a slight time advantage by having a license. So I could have immediate access to the MLS. And if a property came up a new listing, I could sometimes be down at the property within 30 minutes after it was listed. And I know for a fact that for two of the properties we have, that is the reason I got the property is because I was the first one to make an offer. That's incredible. So you're, uh, Cord, did you have one? Yeah, I just wanted to talk about like the, this, to add on to the scaling process, like is this something that you put in a plan to say, okay, Rachel and your husband, we are going to get to 10000 or $15,000 a month. We know we need X amount of properties or X amount of doors to do so. And is that, was that like a, was that like a, as Rye said, like a tactful strategy in terms of we need to get to here and then we know we're good. Or is that something that as you snowballed, you were like, you figured out along the way? 
I kind of figured it out. It's funny you asked though, because my, we, we did have an initial plan and our plan to get to 10 K a month was to buy a single family house every year for 15 years all on 15 year mortgages. Where did you hear that from? Because I've heard that too. And I was like, I heard that. And then you pay it off on the 15th year. And then every year after you're paying one more off, right? Yeah. And then it's huge. And I don't even remember. I don't know if it was a book or rich dad, poor dad. I don't remember. But yeah, I mean, at that time I was like, well, I could retire in my mid thirties and that would be fantastic. So that's what I initially planned out. And then of course I found better properties. Things happened a lot faster once Andrew and I were able to pool our income together and we just, everything happened faster than we planned, thankfully. So on the same topic, I'm thinking about, okay, you guys each had $10,000. You got your first property under contract and then you're, you're scaling to apartment complexes or small multifamily. Like that's pretty big. How did you, can you walk us through the, like the little steps along the way to, so you graduated to each property, I guess it might be a really long story. If you can consolidate it, that'd be excellent. <laughs> yeah. Well, the first property we have, I don't really count because it was a single family and it was Andrew's previous primary residence. And so when we moved in together, we just kept that and rented it out. So it was great to kind of get our feet wet with something that was kind of more casual. It wasn't intentionally purchased as an investment. Um, and that went really well. And then we did the duplex. And then honestly, we were just hungry. We were eager. We wanted to get as many units as possible. So it definitely seems like a big step to go from three tenants at the time to then we had like 14 total, I think. So it, it was a learning process for sure. I mean, we've put some really helpful systems into place to manage tenant interactions and we have mostly self-managed. Um, I have a property manager disaster story I can share with you in a sec, but we can go there in a sec. But one of the things that we did well is we used Google Voice. Um, we didn't ever want our tenants to just have like direct access to our cell phones and our emails and everything. So we set up a Gmail account. We set up a Google Voice number. That way tenants can text and call our Google voice number and it comes to our phone, but they don't have our personal contact information. And like just little things like that, we figured out along the way and they've made a really big difference in the way we're able to manage our tenants. I think that's awesome. And like passive income, like it's in the name of your book, right? So, but real estate is not always passive. If you don't systematize your business and you don't have strategies in place to make it passive, you can buy yourself a job really quick. If you're the one fixing everything and there's nothing against that, if that's how you want to do it. But like Ryan, and I always talk about this. We're not, we're not the ones fixing, we're making the phone calls and we're creating that passivity. Can you talk, can you dive in a little mm-hmm. bit more about maybe some of the other systems you have? I don't know if it's from a bookkeeping standpoint or from just um, maybe a, even if it's a deal flow or deal finding standpoint that allows you to have this well-oiled machine to really create the passivity that you, that you talk about. Yeah, for sure. And you make a great point, Corey, that this isn't passive unless you have a property manager. So for me right now, this business isn't as passive as I would like because we are self-managing. But chances are no one wants to quit their full-time job to become a full-time landlord. So I always tell people Even if you're not planning on hiring a property manager right out of the gates, which I think is wise, I think it's wise to start off self-managing and learning how it works. You want to build in the expense of hiring a property manager so that you always have that option in the future. So in terms of systems that does, that do help make it make more, make it more passive. We use Trello a lot. Um, All of our files are shared between me and my husband because we're managing them together. 
and we play to our strengths. I mean, it's definitely helpful to have a business partner in this. I'm the finance one. I'm the Excel nerd. So I'm doing all the bookkeeping and all the finance stuff. And Andrew is way more patient than I am. So he handles a lot of the tenant communications because I just don't have the patience for it. Um, yeah. So <laughs> we use things like, um, we have spreadsheets that have all of our tenants and their contact information that makes it easy. If we need to send out like a mass email, we can just copy and paste all from one place. Um, everything's shared on Google sheets and then Trello with Trello. We've looped in our maintenance guy. So we have somebody that's really reliable. He's worked with us for a long time. He has access to our Trello board. So we have um, different columns for each property and we just have an ongoing list of maintenance or issues that need to be repaired. And once we put it up there, he just goes out and finds the time to do it. And then he invoices us. So it's a really great system that we have. Can you unpack Trello a little bit? We've actually had, never had anyone talk about that on our show. And I'm, I'm curious if this is just more a, an organizational software or a property management software and maybe some of the features that you use. Yeah, it's just an organizational thing. It really doesn't have to do with property management, but that's what we use it for. So in Trello, you have, um, I think, I think you, it, they're called lists, but they're kind of just columns and you can add tasks to each column. So we have each column is basically a property. And then we'll add these little cards or tasks saying, you know, oh, the sink is leaking here or the refrigerator needs to be repaired. And then we label it with different colors. So like red is extremely urgent, needs to be done immediately. Then we have orange or yellow and yellow is the least urgent. And then we have labels for who's it's assigned to. So if Andrew is the one working with our maintenance guy, like it'll be blue and another color. If it's me, it's pink. Um, so that's just how we kind of keep track of things and we assign ownership and we kind of assign timelines based on that. I love this strategy because it's almost like creating this passivity is like planting seeds in a way. And you're just planting these seeds that hopefully not just one flower grows from it, but multiple flowers. And that's how you, that's how you're able to scale and then move on to other projects. And then just, it, it really does snowball after that. I want to dive into a specifically like the numbers on one of your apartment complexes, maybe, but before I do that, you're kind of have a tagline about $15,000 a month in passive income. Can you give me like the, the, graph, so to speak, of what, of where your money is coming from. I know you mentioned eight to 10,000 in real estate and where's the, the, the balance specifically coming from? Yeah. So we have several, but the biggest, the three biggest ones are the rental income. So, and when I say eight to 10 grand, that's profit. So right. that's after expenses. Um, then my books probably bring in four or five grand a month in profit on average. And then my online course, which is um, get your financial shit together. <laughs> that probably brings in the same, like four or five grand a month. Awesome. That's really cool. Uh, before you we go into the, yeah, go ahead, before we go into the deal specifically, like, I think that's amazing. And you talked about setting it, setting it up in the beginning. Right. And then, you know, you, a couple hours a week to maintain the marketing. How long did it take you to, to write the book? We'll jump into the books later, but like, how long did it take you to create the course or write the books and, and do the research? And, you know, I think it seems very easy now because they're at the end and people are like, oh yeah, she wrote a book. Great. Like that's, that, that's a lot of money coming in, but I'll never be able to do that. If you could kind of just go through a, a little bit and just conceptualize for people, it'd be great. Yes. I'm glad you said that, Ryan, because I used to say that too. Like, oh, I, I see somebody else's success and I could never get there. But the thing you have to remember is I wrote Money, Honey in 2017. 
when I launched it, it was making, you know, it made $600 the first month and then a thousand dollars consistently. And that's still really good. That's great for a self-published book, but we're four years in the making now. And now I'm at four or five grand a month in profit. So it does take time. It's not just this easy thing that happened. It took a lot of effort. Um, Money Honey took me nine months to write and keep in mind though, I was working full-time. We were acquiring rentals and managing tenants and I was trying to write the book basically in the evenings. Um, I also quit for four months. I thought I was never going to look at this book again, and it was going to be an utter disaster. So really, I could have consolidated that down to about five months. And I think my second book probably took about the same amount of time. Okay, awesome. And then for your course too, I'm just thinking about, you know, we have a lot of information that we put into these shows and, and we research personal finance all the time. And we're trying to figure out, you know, course, coursework would potentially be an idea for us down the line. And we're trying to think of like, okay, how would we segment this? What would, what do people really want? And I guess maybe dive into what's in your course and why you picked those specific pieces of information that you thought were super valuable to people and they, they would want, and it'd be something to purchase. Yes. The course is amazing. If you guys are thinking about it, highly recommend because it's such a high profit margin. And once you have it created, it's so little work. I mean, you only have to sell a handful of courses to make the same amount of money as you would from selling hundreds and hundreds of books. But my thought, and I didn't launch my course until 2020, um, right in the middle of COVID actually. So my thought was that the books are great for people that can really implement on their own. The problem though, is that self-discipline is the hardest thing. So there's always this tendency to consume knowledge and read and listen to podcasts, but are, is anyone actually taking action? That's the hard part. And so I thought to myself, if that's where people are really struggling, I wanna create something where I can give them the accountability, the structure, the environment, the support that they need to really succeed and follow through on what they're learning. So it's kind of designed to go along with money, honey, but there, it goes much deeper into topics. There's templates, there's a Facebook group, like I'm in contact with all of my course takers and it really helps them take the action so that they can make, start really making massive money moves. That's the total goal here. Like the action, Ryan, Ryan and I are all about the action. And that's why I wanted to like, dive into specifically one of your deals and talk and your apartment complex and talk about like, what are the moves that you make? What specifically, what did you do is, are these apartment complexes something that you're adding value to and pulling money out of, or I'll let you actually dive in before I spoil everything. <laughs> no, you're good. I actually think the duplex is a fun one to talk about. It was sure. pretty interesting the way that it happened. Um, it was the first one we were actively looking for. And I always tell people, you have to be patient with this process. It took That's us really nine... hard for me. <laughs> so yeah. hard. Yeah. And you get discouraged and you're like, this isn't going to work out. People give up. The duplex took us nine months to find. And that's after we had made several offers on properties. That's after we had an accepted contract on a property that fell through. So it wasn't this one and done thing. It, it definitely took time. And my best advice is to be patient and don't settle. Don't start feeling like six months down the road, you're not finding anything. So you're going to settle for numbers that are less than perfect. Don't do that because you will find the right thing soon. And the last thing you want to do is make a bad investment just because you're desperate. So just be patient with the duplex specifically at the time I was, I was looking through the expired and canceled listings on the MLS. So listings that had fallen off or expired or whatever happened, they weren't active anymore. And so I was starting to reach out to these agents to be like, Hey, what happened here? Is this going to come back on the market? 
What does the seller want to do? And I saw this duplex and I was like, this looks like a really good deal. So I just stayed in touch with this agent for months. Um, I think people are afraid to pester and that's what they're afraid they're going to come off as doing. But I was, I was just being friendly and I just wanted to stay top of mind basically. So I would check in every four or six weeks. I'd be like, Hey, just want to let you know, I'm still interested. So let me know if there's any updates. It wasn't pestering. It was just, Hey, I'm still here when your seller is ready. And because of that, right before they relisted the property, they reached out to me first and they said, Hey, we're going to put this back on the market. Do you want to make an offer? And so they let me make an off market offer before anyone else could see it, which is incredible. Especially and right I, now yes. <laughs> in this climate. Yeah. Yeah. And I, that's the best deal we'll have ever done ever. I mean, it is probably make, it's probably 20 or 25% cash on cash ROI. Let's talk, let's talk about it. I, I'd like to know if you're, if you're willing to share the yeah, numbers, absolutely. like what you purchased it for, you can talk about the expenses, the cash flow, and kind of how it has performed over the last, you know, I guess a couple of years since you bought it. <clears throat> okay. So we purchased it for a hundred grand. Um, and it's a duplex. One side was rented under rented, but it was rented. The other side needed a total rehab. It was absolutely, it needed to be gutted and everything. So my thought was, we don't have enough money to, you know, pour 10 grand or 15 grand into rehabbing this. So I negotiated initially, the price was going to be even lower, like around 80 or 85. But I said, Hey, can you give us a seller's concession to cover the renovation and we'll purchase it for a hundred. And I think that like laws around sellers concessions are a little more strict these days with what lenders allow and don't allow. So maybe I shouldn't even be talking about it. It's but like a, we ran into this and for some reason it was like a percentage of the sale price and we couldn't go above a certain percentage. So, but it might vary state to state. And so, yeah. I mean, talking about Kentucky with homes that, that in that price point, I don't actually don't even know enough to speak on it. So it might still yeah. be the same. Same. Well, it worked out. So at least there's that, but yeah, they gave us a really big seller's concession, which was just a check, a cash check at closing that we could then use for the renovation. So our mortgage was a little bit bigger, but then we didn't have to come up with all this cash out of pocket to renovate this other side. So that worked out really, really well for us. I think the renovation was, it was 10 or 15 grand. Um, we had several contractors come over and quote us um, don't ever go with the first contractor that comes out. And that's a mistake that I feel like people learn the hard way. <laughs> Especially when you have holding costs and you're thinking like, oh, I just got to get this going or I'm losing money. But, you know, ha having a good contractor, we totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the other thing is don't forget about the holding costs because it's easy to estimate all the numbers and say, oh, the renovation is going to cost this much. But you have holding costs of paying the mortgage and the utilities and everything else during the renovation. And I think a lot of investors forget about that as well. So this renovation, um, I think it was about three weeks. They did a great job. One thing we did well is that we showed up every single day to this property. So they knew the owners are going to be here today. They come every day at different times of the day. So we never came at the same time every day. And I would also bring stuff like Gatorade and bagels to them. And so they really liked me. <laughs> and it I would have been nine weeks if you didn't show up. So I'm glad yeah, no. <laughs> have to keep them fed. Yeah. So they did a great job on the renovation. And, um, I think when we bought it, it was cash flowing $500 per month. So after that renovation and both sides were rented, both sides were, or each side was making about $250 per month in profit. So that was really great. Um, now though, it's more like $800 a month in profit because we've been able to raise rents. We've, we've done some other renovations over time. The area has become more popular. So it's even better now.
Do you know what the increase in the value of the property is from when you like, was it worth about a hundred grand when you bought it? And I'm curious what it might be worth at this point. I think a hundred grand was a pretty amazing price. So that was probably discounted, but I would estimate it's worth about 180 now. And this and is three years later. Yes. Essentially four years. Um, and yeah, so 180 grand and we owe like 65 or wow. something. So we have a ton of equity in it. Yeah. It's awesome. Incredible deal. And I just, yeah. now I'm thinking about, I know we talked about scaling and I'm not sure how, I can't remember how far we went on this, but like now, so you had the duplex and then how do you jump from a two unit place to a 10 to 12 unit place? Like, what are you doing to run the numbers differently? How are you finding those deals? Can you just talk about the transition between, I guess, residential versus commercial? Yeah, for sure. I, um, lucked out with all the properties that we found. They were all on the MLS. Um, which is amazing. That doesn't happen for most investors. Normally you have to get a lot more creative about where you're finding deals, but we got pretty lucky. The second property that we bought. So after the duplex, we bought this property that I think it's 11 units and it was 430,000. So we had to come up with something like a hundred grand down payment, which is obviously an enormous jump. I mean, that's a huge amount of money, but if you think about the commission check I got from that first duplex and then combined, we're making, you know, over six figures, and we're trying to save half of our income. And then we're saving all of the cash flow from the initial property. We barely scraped it together in time, but we that's how we got to that second down payment. If you it's an interesting way to frame this. And it's like this has to be a disciplined mindset for for you to get commission checks of 10, 12, 13, 15 thousand dollars and for you to not go put a down payment on a new car or for you to not go spend it on, you know, whatever it is, renovating your own home or something. It's a really and I'm starting to develop this mindset where it's like every time I get money from whatever source, whether that's podcasting or it's it's work, a W-2 or real estate, I'm thinking like I have to deploy this money into something else in order for it to grow. And it's like I think it's something that you have to frame and you clearly you've framed that for yourself. Can you talk a little bit about the discipline that you have or I guess it's maybe just a long-term goal type of thing where – when you receive money, you're saving that and then you're go getting and going and getting a return on it. Yes. And Corey, that two years of us working our asses off <laughs> was hell. I mean, there was nothing was fun or enjoyable about it. It was awful. It was the hardest I've ever worked in my life. I don't even know how we did it. Looking back, I don't even know how I had the work ethic and the energy to do what we did. Um, so I say that because I don't want this to sound like it was this easy thing. Nothing about this was easy. Um, but yeah, I mean, there were two years of weekends where we were going down to our properties every Saturday to check on things. And my friends were out at brunch or going out to the bars or going out to the club. And I wasn't going not, be not only because I didn't have time, but I didn't want to spend my money that way. And so at a young age, I saw a lot of my friends pass me by in terms of lifestyle and they were living in cute houses and driving new cars. And I was like way back here, you know, per driving my old crappy Honda Civic and not doing anything fun. And I basically looked like I was broke. That's how I lived. And if you've, I'm sure you guys have read the millionaire next door which is basically about how millionaires are not people that live in mansions and drive sports cars, but they're very modest. And that's so true because although I didn't look like I was living a wealthy lifestyle, I was wealthier than ever anyone that I knew because of all the equity we had in our properties, all of the cash flow that we were making. It just didn't appear that way. 
I think the biggest thing that it comes down to is the ability to delay gratification. So if you can delay gratification and know that it sucks right now, but you're really going to reap the rewards in a few years, that's what's going to set you apart from the rest. And talking about delaying gratification, Rachel, it's like, hold on a second. You're making $15,000 a month in passive income after four years, okay? It's not like now you're probably not at the place that you even want to be because I'm sure you, I mean, for me, speaking for myself, I know I want to live this lifestyle that's not like looking like I'm broke forever, right? Like I, I, you know, but four years compared to working for 45 and putting money in a 401k for some hopes that you're going to be wealthy one day, I think is it's actually not as long as people think. And once you're in the day-to-day, I'm sure you look back in those two years, probably were the slowest and fastest two years of your life at the same time, right? Yes, 100%. And and you bring up a good point about passive income and the way that we traditionally save for retirement, it's so outdated. It used to work, you know, working a 40-hour job until you're 65 and saving up a nest egg, it used to work great, but times have changed a lot right? The costs of college have ballooned, placing an enormous burden on our generation. Pensions are a thing of the past. The social security trust fund is projected to be fully depleted by the year 2034. So we can't even, yes, exactly. And what I love about passive income is that to me, it feels a lot more attainable to create five or six or eight grand a month in passive income rather than working for 40 years in the hopes of saving up one or $2 million to retire. And the best thing about passive income is that you don't have to wait that long. I mean, yes, you do have to put in the work and it's going to take some time, but you can create passive income now and reap the rewards now rather than having to wait until you're 65 to retire. I think that's an amazing point. And, and I've two points off of this is one is like, you're, you're super proud of building these income streams, right? Like they're, they're yours. You have a book, you have a course, you have like your social media that, you know, your little community that you've built and, and all that stuff. And I think that's way more fulfilling than going to a W2 job and living out someone else's dream and putting a fatter paycheck in their pocket. Um, so, you know, just that, that idea of like grabbing your own life and, and putting in the work now to live the little way you want is, is incredible. I'm, I'm curious, more of a personal question for you, but like, what's your why behind this whole thing? I know you have your, your freedom now and you know, what type of life is going to make you feel make you feel fulfilled and happy? My why stems from when I was a lot younger, like in middle school. Um, I grew up in a really wealthy County. So just to give you some context, a lot of the kids in my high school, when they turned 16, they got brand new BMWs, uh, which was crazy for me to see. (laughs) (laughs) I, my family was not operating that way. We weren't going on family trips, let alone even going out to eat at restaurants. So at a pretty young age, I felt like I didn't fit in. And that's not the way you want to feel in middle school and in high school. So I remember thinking to myself at a young age, like I didn't want to end up like everyone else struggling with money. I didn't want to have to operate on a strict budget my whole life or have to borrow money from family and friends to make it to my next paycheck. I wanted to be different. And I realized that what I did then would either set me up for wealth or for poverty. So that's why partially why I took things seriously at such a young age is because money was always this stressor in our family. And it was this thing that I had a bad relationship with. Often we grow up with limiting beliefs because of the environment we grew up in or the way that we were raised. And I certainly had limiting beliefs about, man, there's never enough money. Money's never there for me. Money is always a stressor. And I just had this burning desire that, that I wanted to become financially independent I didn't want to ever have to rely on somebody else 
for anything that had to do with money. And more than that, I wanted to be able to take care of my loved ones if they needed my help financially. So kind of growing up with that mindset and this determination, that's, that's why I am the way that I am. Thank you. I have one I'm going to bring it back to the beginning of the episode and I just, cause it's such an interesting topic, but can you talk a little bit more on the coin-based um, income stream? And uh, you know, I've seen, <laughs> I don't know why in my head, like Ozark, the show Ozark's popping in my head, like laundering money. And I know it's not that we talk laundromat, but it's just like, all clean in my head. <laughs> I'm like, definitely right. not it. <laughs> it has, it's not, I know it's not it at all, but it's I, so I think of this idea a lot too, is like, okay, maybe you do put together a laundromat and people pay you, they put in their money, their coins, and you empty them out every every month. Or in your rental units, you put a washer dryer, but it's coin-based. Or you have an, a physical vending machine with potato chips, with candy, snacks, whatever it is, and you have it live in, in a shopping center or something like that. Do you specifically have these? And if so, can you mention or kind of walk us through like how you got them into certain places and what strategy you you guys, I guess, took? So we don't specifically have them, but we did get close though at one point, especially when we were considering a laundromat, but there's all types of coin operated machines. There's vending machines, there's ATM machines, there's laundry machines and doing a laundromat is a little bit cost. I mean, it takes a lot of money. You have to have a lot of capital. So that's hard to get into. But if you think about buying a one-off coin operated washer and dryer, finding a landlord who has a complex or whatever lawn, you know, apartment complex in your city that doesn't have laundry on site, you can work with that owner and come to an agreement, you know, split profits with them or whatever it, you need to do and just start finding your way into some of these different locations. Um, there's also like arcade machines. So you don't have to open an arcade. I think that's probably a little bit outdated at this point, but is there a bowling alley or a movie theater where you could install a few and you get permission from the location owner? Normally you have to go out and prospect on, on foot and you have an agreement with the owner of the location and you're gonna be splitting the profits with them in some way. Very Great. cool. Yeah, it's something that we, I know for, I don't know if I wanna, I don't wanna speak for Rye, but I know I have never thought of that or I've heard of it, but I just haven't thought about implementing it and like how I would even go about doing it. So it's a, it's a really cool, option for people who maybe don't want to get into real estate or just want some other sort of passive income. I know we're jumping around a little bit here, but I want to just ask you another question about your real estate portfolio before we get into your book and kind of uh, wind down towards the end of our show. The question I have is you mentioned you live in Colorado, but you're investing in Kentucky. Did you live in Kentucky at one point? Or how did you decide that Kentucky was the place that you would be investing? And if you're doing it at a, at a, a distance. Okay. So I lived in Kentucky for 20 years of my life. Okay. So yeah. So we lived there together. It was kind of the obvious place to start investing and it was a great place to invest. We moved to Colorado in 2020 and officially became long distance landlords, which is always something I had talked about doing or for people that live in a high cost of living city, you know, I always recommend invest long distance. And now I'm actually doing it myself. And I can say that, yes, you have to have people in place, but overall it is a lot easier to manage from a distance because when we're in Kentucky, we were going down to our properties once or twice a week because things would go wrong. We would have to go out there and fix it. Now we're forced to outsource everything and it's great. So we're never down there. We just tell other people what to do. And it's made the whole thing a lot more pleasant for us. Um, and then what was, was there another part of the question? 
No, I mean, that was, that was really it. I, I think okay. to go off of that and to, to give some context, I forget who we were talking to. We talked to so many investors these days that they kind of, some of the great advice blends together. So I don't know who quoted this, but they said, if you live 45 minutes away or an hour away, or maybe an hour and a half, and it takes you that long, half a day to do whatever you need to do with the property, there's really no difference between that and living six or seven hours away or a flight away if you're not going to go there anyway. So we, I, Ryan and I had at one point visited Cleveland and Columbus area, and there's opportunities potentially for us to invest there. And we were originally scared of it because we we're like, we're not, we're not in the area, but if the systems are in place, it's just like us investing. We live an hour away from our properties now and we're not going there. So like, really, what is the difference in you leaving that area? It's probably scary, but now that you did it, you're probably, this is amazing. I'm going to, I'm going to be able to scale quicker because you're focused on tasks that aren't maintenance and CapEx and things that take away from probably what you're good at. Yes. It's definitely given us more confidence and it's like, wow, we could have done this a long time ago if we really had needed to. But it, I think it's just one of those things that people look at as being scary to be a long distance landlord. But in reality, you're right. It's not really any different than living an hour away from the property and probably it'll make your life a lot easier. Absolutely. So I do want to dive in a little bit here on your book. And, and I know we talked about the inception of the book, but can you share with people what they may take away from money, honey and passive um, income, aggressive retirement? Just, I'm sure they're different, but what value do you think this brings to, to people who may want to read it? Yeah. So the reason I wrote money, honey is because I used to be a financial advisor and all my friends would come to me for financial advice. At some point I remember thinking, well, I wonder why they're not learning on their own or reading books or picking this up. And then I realized, oh yeah, that's because personal finance is boring, right? <laughs> For most people, it's boring, complex, dry. I mean, no wonder people don't like to learn about it. So I thought to myself, how can I make this topic sassy and simple and fun? And that's where the idea for Money Honey came from. It is just written in a really funny, engaging voice. And that's why it's resonated with female millennials. So it's called, and the, the subtitle is so it's money, honey, a simple seven step guide for getting your financial shit together. So as you can see, I don't take myself too seriously. Um, and it's really about the basics of money management. So tracking your expenses and saving and paying off debt and investing and taxes and insurance, just kind of the main buckets of financial topics and how to start your journey of taking control of your finances. So that's money, honey. And then my second book, passive income, aggressive retirement, I wrote in 2019 as I was approaching my uh, quit date of my career. So, you know, by then I was telling people, yeah, I'm going to be quitting and retiring. I'm 27. I'm making 10 grand a month in passive income. And everyone was like, how, how the heck are you doing that? So I could tell there was a thirst for this knowledge. And in the book, I basically outlined 28 different passive income models. So trust me when I say there is something out there for everybody. Great. Wow. I'm picking that book up. That's amazing. <laughs> Thank you. Sorry. That's that's really cool, and I, I appreciate we appreciate the the breakdown and, and the walkthrough on those because I think a lot of people we in our W twos we talk about this all the time. Like we always have people coming up now and asking us advice on things and like, hey, what tools, resources, books, etc. Can I lean on? And I think um, your books are going to fit that mold perfectly now. Thanks, I appreciate it. Mm -hmm. Cool. So as we Right. If, unless you had another question on the book, we can move into the, the core four here. And uh, so the core four is kind of like uh, we asked the same four questions to our guests, a little bit more personal, get to know them and just um, get a feel for uh, how, how you live and, and, and aspects like that. So Perfect. 
the, the besides your own book, the first question is, what is your favorite investing or business book? Although I'm sure yours is probably one of your favorites. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have you guys read the Millionaire Fastlane or Fastlane Millionaire? I always forget how it goes. No. Oh my gosh, it is so good. God, there's it's, so many damn books on my list now. I know, and I have like 20 on my nightstand, <laughs> but <laughs> it is such a, an amazing book about being an entrepreneur and how starting a business is is the fastest path to building wealth. And it really helps me transition from like a consumer mindset to a producer mindset. So it's one of my all-time favorites. I think I've read it three times. Thank you. I've, I have, <clears throat> I have heard that book and I haven't read it. And I'm the same as you. I got 40 books. We, we do one of these per week. So I got 40 books now stacked on my yeah. dresser. I just got to keep crushing them. But um, real quick, before but, you go into that, we have such a great producer. He texted us millionaire fast lane by MJ DeMarco. Just for yes. anyone who's uh for anyone who's out there. So cool. MJ. Um, go ahead, Rye. <laughs> Killed it. So, um, and just actually on this book still, is this more so like a, a walkthrough guide or is it more like a parable story where you could, you like, you're living through someone else? No, I think it's, it's very actionable. It's a really long book. So there's a lot of great things you can take from it and implement immediately. Excellent. Cool. Mm -hmm. So the second question in the core four is what has been your biggest mistake along your investing journey and what have you learned from it? I'm like laughing right now because there's so many. There's literally so many mistakes, so many things that I've done to lose money. But I mentioned the property manager story earlier, so I'll make it brief. But this was the biggest mistake we've made so far. We, by the time we got to something like 26 units, we were like, okay, we have to hire somebody because we were both still working full time and we just didn't have the time. We had this couple working for us that was doing things like maintenance, cleaning, um, doing some jobs for us. And they were the hardest working people I've ever met. And still they are, they always went above and beyond. So we were like, well, instead of spending all this money on, on, on a company, why don't we hire these individuals, make them employees? We can save some money and be a little bit more hands-on with the way that we are managing them. So that's what we decided to do. And that was our big mistake because at first everything was great. And then things started to kind of slip and about six months in, my husband went to collect the rent one weekend from our on-site lockboxes and noticed there was quite a significant amount missing. Mm. It was not just, you know, a tenant paying late here or there. It was a significant chunk. So we're calling our property managers, trying to get a hold of them, but they're totally MIA. We never heard from them again after that. And it turns out that they stole $6,000 in rent money that weekend. And we found out they'd been squatting in vacant rooms and units in our uh, buildings for almost a year. So, wow. yeah, isn't that intense? <laughs> That's intense. It, it, you know, the, the funny thing about this is that this is really a mindset game. And, and I know that's like so cliche, like, Corey, what the hell do you mean? Like that's, but the point of that is like, the fact that you're making it through something that big, this can crush people, you know, or the, if they lose money on a deal, they, the instant thought is like, well, this game sucks. And it's like, well, no, the, the deal or the small microcosm might suck, but not the actual game if you play it the right way. And for something like this to happen to you, you may think like, okay, I'm getting out of whatever I'm doing right now. But the perseverance play there is 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 huge. And look, you're probably glad you went through it. Cause you know what, what not to do. You know? Yeah. I mean, you're exactly right. And I'm not going to lie. I did have those thoughts of like, sure. no, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> yeah. But at the end of the day, it was, it was an important learning lesson. And I, I just basically told myself, you know what? I paid $6,000 in tuition to learn a very important lesson. And I'm never going to make that mistake again. 
And just the lesson of not being so cheap, not trying to cut corners all the time, just in the sake of, in the name of, you know, being frugal. What we should have done, obviously, in hindsight, was to spend more money on the licensed, bonded, insured property management company. Because sometimes if you try to cut corners and you're cheap, you're actually going to be spending a lot more money in the long run. I love what you said there. Uh, my my dad taught me this at a, at a young age. He he owns a construction company and um, ha, has his hand in a bunch of real estate as well, but he he never went to college. And he has told me stories of how he's lost money along the way. And he's like, well, I just try not to get pissed off because I said, well, I went to college today. And so yeah. basically like, it, it, that's his own little mantra to get him through. And he's like, Hey, just keep pushing, man. Like it's all good. You took your course. So, um, thanks for sharing that. That's cool. Yeah. yeah really, no really problem. Cool. I'll share an acronym along those lines with you. So fail is the acronym. And I don't know who to credit this to. I don't remember who told me this, but fail stands for first attempt in learning. And I just thought that was really cool. So that's how I look at things now. I know what I was going to say. That was, oh, that yeah. was great, by the way. It, it, it's, <laughs> it's about failing though. And it's like, it, I think the, the saying is that people who are successful, they, they don't, they hate failing, but they're not afraid of failing. And that's oh, the yeah. biggest thing. The more that you fail, the more you pivot and the more you learn, the more you're able to go in different directions, where if you, if you fear too much, you'll never get started. So having that expense. I mean, we've already been through, Ryan and I have already on a small scale been through things that, you know, we should have done differently. And now we know. So very cool. The third question in our core four is who is your who for 2021 or going forward this next year? And by meeting this person, you feel your life and business will be propelled to the next level. A little bit of a thinking question. Um, and if it, you haven't, you don't have somebody in mind, maybe somebody who you've met recently, who's helped propel your business forward. Um, you know, I, along the lines of being way too frugal, when I first quit my job, I was kind of flailing about, you know, how am I going to grow my money, honey business? How do I scale from here? And I realized that I was doing stuff on my own for far too long, just because I wanted to save money. And that if I wanted to grow my business and scale and be a huge success, I would need to hire an expert. So it's, it's this idea now of, am I surrounding myself with the right people? Am I surrounding myself with authors and course creators and entrepreneurs that are already 10 to 15 steps ahead of where I am? Because if I'm not, how am I going to learn from them and grow? So I am in a mastermind now under Honoré Quarter, and she's an amazing author who has a huge empire. But, you know, I think it's just somebody like that a mentor, a coach, a, somebody who runs a mastermind, somebody who is an expert and is already where I want to be. That's the person I need to consistently have in my life. Love that. Last question in the core four, and we touched briefly on this. Uh, it's kind of ties into your why, but what do you want your legacy to be? Um, so David Osborne is a huge real estate agent and investor. And he told me at some point that everyone's bucket list, there's normally a financial component. There's normally a financial component for someone to achieve their dreams. Whatever those dreams are, traveling, quitting their job to raise children, uh, writing a book, whatever it is, you normally have to have money to do that. So by me teaching young women about financial literacy, I do feel in a way that like, I want my legacy to be that ultimately I'm helping them achieve their dreams. If they can create passive income, if they can achieve financial independence, then they can do whatever they want. And I, I hope to be a part of that. Great. Love it. The last segment of our show is called The Last Drop. You know, squeezing the, the, the last 
drop of juice here in the weekly juice. What was, what would be advice that you would give to your younger self, or maybe even if it's not you, just somebody who's just getting started? Uh, probably the Nike slogan, <laughs> which is just do it. Um, we all hold ourselves back for various reasons. I could have started investing sooner, but I thought I needed a certain amount of money. There's ways you can start investing without money. And then even if you do have money, it's scary. It is so scary because you know, you could lose money. And we talked about it a little bit, but I think if you accept the fact that you're going to fail, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to do things that waste your time and that waste your money. It's not going to be perfect. If you can just accept that from the get-go, I think it'll be a lot easier to get started. So I'll leave with this quote by Zig Ziglar, which I love. And Zig Ziglar said, you don't have to be great to start, but you have to start to be great. Ooh, love it. That's Mic really drop. cool. Absolutely yeah. love that. That's awesome. <laughs> Mic well, drop. <laughs> Rachel, it was, a, it was a pleasure getting to know you. And I think a lot of listeners are going to just be super intrigued and, and want to connect with you or learn more about you. If they'd like to, where do you suggest they go and, and how can they find you? Yes, thank you. So both of my books, Money, Honey, and Passive Income, Aggressive Retirement are available on Amazon in ebook, paperback, and audio. And what I'd love to do for your listeners is if anyone wants to download my Passive Income Starter Kit, I will give that for free. So they can go to moneyhoneyrachel.com slash bonus. Awesome. Wow, thank That's you. That's great. Yes, thank you. Right, you might have two, might have a, uh... Ryan and I downloaded that in like 20 minutes. Awesome. <laughs> That's great. So thank you so much. This has been, this has been amazing. Uh, just getting to know you and your strategies and how, and how you've been able to develop $15,000 of passive income in, in, in four years, essentially. So I think this is motivation for men, women, anyone to get involved. And we just want to thank you again for coming on. Yes. Thank you both so much for having me. 